Well, hello boys and girls, sports fans of sorted waifs and strays, and for those that I may have missed in that series of classifications, hello ladles and jelly spoons. It's Den here from Diginomica, and recently I had a conversation with Rachel Hopper, who runs the Community Roundtable. She's run this for many years, and has recently given her State of report um, available publicly. It's a fascinating report. It goes into a lot of detail about what's happening, what's not happening in uh, communities, both internal and external. And they have done that split this year. But what I wanted to talk to her about was the context and background for the report and specifically how that relates to the current situation where, if you're anything like me, you're in lockdown. So without further ado, Let's take it away. So let's talk about this thing. I, I was on the call yesterday. You're rattling off tons and tons and tons of statistics. And I got to the end of it and I thought to myself, you know what? I've been following this story for a long, long time. I don't know how long. How long have you been doing this now, Rachel? It's my 11th year. I have okay. cyclical amnesia. Yes, thank you. Yeah, and and... I got to the end of it and I thought, on the one hand, you've got to be hopeful, right? But then on the other hand, I thought, nothing's changed. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm overly pessimistic. Go on, you tell me. Well, so um, one thing that is new this year that we haven't done in past years is really uh, take the internal and external segment and look at them independently and say, what's the story of customer communities versus internal communities? Yeah. Um, and that's because um, for many years, they weren't consistently different, meaning there wasn't a pattern of consistent difference that I could say, okay, uh, this consistently looks different and they're performing differently and we should be treating them differently. And I actually think it's a sign of progress that we're at that point that we can do that because they're maturing at different rates because they're radically different use cases. Like what you're trying to do with the community is pretty different. And when we started, I mean, you know, you were in the, you were an SAP mentor, you were in that community. Um, Communities were only used in organizational context as customer communities. And for the most part, the innovation that SAP made that uh, many uh, customer communities still haven't made is that it's not just about technical support, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean... I mean, that, that community's actually gone to shit the last It has, years. it has. They haven't I mean, continued it. No, essentially, it's become an extension of marketing. Yeah, right? and it's like the, the 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 intellectual capital that they built up there has literally walked out of the building. You know, it's like yep. the, minute, the minute that has started to happen, people who understood what community at SAP should mean said, "That's it, I'm out." Yeah, I don't want to know. And they threw away, what, and it, it's back to humans aren't on the balance sheet. We can't articulate in financial terms what customer loyalty means to us or cust- like any of that community stuff. And uh, 
I think in, t so my view of this, and we were talking about some of the reading I've done, is that until we innovate our accounting practices and our legal practices, we will not really transform our organizations. And the irony being is everybody's focused on the IT piece or the technology piece, and they're getting crazy about analytics and IoT and AI and oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like, the corporate accounting structure and the corporate legal structure is going to keep holding you back. If you don't change the governance of your organizations, there's no way you can maximize the benefit of the technology coming up. Yeah, but you then got to, you, you, you need a, a massive cultural shift then. Yeah, so, it, but to me, it's not cultural, it's governance, right? So structure drives behavior, right? So if we start accounting and tracking different things, if we measure different things, if we incentivize people in different ways, if we start accounting for the value of expertise and who oh generates God. it, then we can change our culture. Okay. People are going to think, what on earth are these folk talking about, right? Because <laughs> we haven't got a context here at the moment. No. Rachel, so... Just just explain this whole business of the community roundtable so that people have an yeah. understanding of what we're rabbiting on about in our little bubble. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's a little bit long-winded in that uh, people don't uh, necessarily understand when I say community what I'm talking about. So I'm going to back up and, and walk through that logic. Um, I grew up uh, with a community organizer for a mother and a father who ran a congregational church. And in congregational churches, the congregation hires and fires its minister. So you lead by tacit authority. It's not your traditional executive structural power. So that's my context of growing up and seeing these thriving communities that made real change happen without structural control from the center. Okay. Um, but I'm also a really impatient person. And so I watched that. We would, we would, never, we would never know. I know. Question, would, would you guess? <laughs> Anyways, I grew up and I was like, I can't, I can't even do that. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't. So I got into the commercial world because that worked a little better with my ability to actually uh, do things. Um, and I ended up working at a company called PRTM, which is a management consulting firm that really focused on uh, operational strategy. So new product development, supply chain operations. And I was an analyst there. Um, and I was an analyst in the Pentagon before that when I thought government was a good idea. And again, I'm not patient, so that didn't actually pan out um, very well. I had to get out of that. But I became an analyst at this firm and I learned a lot about business there. And I worked with a lot of different industries um, they spun off a tech company and I became a product manager and I built in the late nineties, I was building new product development portals, co-innovation portals, ideation, functionality, all of this stuff that we've talked about now, 20 years later is actually successful, more successful in the market. But I was 
doing that in the late 90s, one of the first um, SaaS platforms. Um, it was way too early. Then I moved out to Silicon Valley. I worked in payments. And I was there when LinkedIn and Friendster and all of these social technologies were coming up. Mm. And so I was sitting at the intersection of content and payments and this kind of community crowdsource type environment. Um, and IDC thought my background was interesting and hired me as their first social software analyst because I kind of understood all of these different dynamics. And I started writing about it when the market was tiny. Um, and my, my boss at the time sent me to a training class uh, to learn systems dynamics. And it blew my mind as an analyst because I was like, oh, my God, feedback loops, behavior, hmm. multiple behavior flows coming together to influence the outcome. And, oh, my God, the way I've been doing business analysis for years is in a spreadsheet up to the right. You know, like, <laughs> let's have this linear model where we invest 2x and we get 2y out. And I was like, it's wholly insufficient for except except that that's the way people still do stuff well i mean it's still wholly insufficient yeah yeah even though that's the way we still think about it um mm. and uh so i was an analyst and i that's when i ran across you the first time uh 2008 2006 oh, oh 2000 okay. i don't know maybe it was earlier than that i don't remember i think it was earlier six seven um, uh, and, uh, maybe I drank a little too much of the Kool-Aid I was writing about, but given my, didn't, but didn't, didn't we all, didn't we all, right? but I was, yeah, I mean, what I did was marry that to what I knew about leadership from my parents and that model yeah. with what I knew about operations. And I was looking at it and I was saying, oh my gosh, this changes everything yeah. and companies don't understand it at all they are not prepared but they've opened the garden gate now everybody's talking to them and they're trying to manage this chaos the way they always have through this hierarchical control and yeah. the the speed of information in their markets is increasing exponentially while the speed of information inside their organizations is not moving. And so the tension is just ratcheting up. And so as tension and anxiety ratchet up, what do people do? They retrench and they become even more of who they are. They try and control things even more. And of course it doesn't work and they become more fragile to the environment around them. And now we have COVID and that has just broken the dam open on displaying that. <laughs> um, but so that's why I started the CR because I was like, there, there's a way to lead these networks of people without centralized control. I know that intuitively from my childhood. Now we have technology that I didn't go into community management in the 80s because I wasn't patient enough. It took forever and you had to be really mission driven to, 
to lead that way. You had to mm. have a moral driver to spend the time to mm. kind of work that way. But because you couldn't get a thousand people in a room together and get a decision, you had to go around to little pockets of them. And by the time, like, it just, it took forever. But the technology now allows us to have a one big conversation with a thousand people or 10,000 people or a hundred thousand people. And so not only is it more efficient than it used to be, it's more efficient than the hierarchical model of our organizations. And, okay, that's great, but it blows everyone's minds about how to manage in that way because everything we've been trained for throughout our childhood, throughout our education is that um, there is a rank aim and there is a process and there is a, a bottleneck whereby the best things get kind of curated and funneled up the hierarchy. And that's how we determine who deserves to be at the top. You know, I'm going to go go back here. I mean, before we started recording this, we talked about some the, the economics of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. As, as the root of a lot of this stuff. <clears throat> when I kicked off my career as, a, as, a, as an accountant, one of the routes that I could go was down what's called cost and management accounting, right? There are, mm-hmm. there are public accountants and other. And I remember going to a company and they explained to me what cost and management accounting is about, right? And essentially, it's an extension of what Taylor mm-hmm. did in the whole time in motion yeah. thing. And I remember looking at it at, at the tender age of, I don't know what it was, maybe the 18, 19 at the time and thinking, this makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I cannot see how this makes sense. And it never did. And <clears throat> even though I was trained in that, I understand things like standard costing, yeah. Yeah? where a unit of labor is yeah. applied to materials and so on and so forth. It, it's, it's meaningless. Mm. You know, I've, I've had this argument many, many times with people who've said, well, you need a standard because why? Why do, why do you need it? Explain to me the logic here. And nobody can explain it other than other than to sort of go back and say, well, Taylor. I said, well, you know, let's let's think about what Taylor did. First of all, first of all, he fudged it. Yeah? I mean, his results were unreliable. Mm. They weren't particularly scientific. And you're telling me that's the basis upon which we manage our businesses? Yeah. Come on. Well, and come on. And, and the disservice that it has done to people is enormous because what it has said to people is you have to fit in this box to be a good, smart human. This is the box you have to fit in. And everything, if you can't fit in that box, either because you're neurodiverse or you're a person of color or you didn't get educated in the standard way or you're poor or whatever then you're an exception to our process. Yeah. Right? And so everyone is made to feel like an exception. That they're co- but they are, but everybody is exceptional. But that's my point, right? <laughs> we assume people are standard. When really yeah, yeah. everyone is an exception. 
And so we manage standards rather than assuming everyone needs something different. Yeah. And it's, and it's made us anxious and controlling and, uh, angry and violence like you can go on and on right like that root anxiety of not not understanding our root that our value as humans comes from our uniqueness Hmm. has screwed us up i can't i can't count the number of people who are saying i can't wait to get back to work really you're defined by your work, are you? Mm. That is so goddamn sad. It's sad. Well, I mean, it's predictable. So in in that sense, it's secure, right? And I I was I was talking to some uh, uh, doctorate of uh, psychology, and we were talking about the COVID crisis, and she was basically saying, you know, people need security to feel less anxious, and there's a couple of ways you can get that. And we were talking about the future and. While COVID is uh, enormous, I expect more COVIDs to happen in the future, whether it's environmental something or like we're going to be dealing with crises in a variety of different formats. Um, And in that environment, if you're a executive or a human being or whatever, uh, you have no assurances of what the future is going to be. You can't plan. You can't plan, but that's what we've been told is our security. But there's another way to get that predictability and that security, and it's to know who we are and what we care about. And if you don't know who you are and what you care about, then that schedule and that predictability that somebody else gives to you is what eases your anxiety. Because you know what's expected of you. You know what you're going to do every day. That gives you that assurance. But it's it's a false, it's kind of a false prophecy <laughs> or a false comfort. Because at some point, things are going to change and you're going to have to find your comfort from yourself, not something extrinsic. So when it comes to all this survey stuff that... Um you've been doing over the years around community, both internal and external. One of the recurring themes that I see, I'm, I'm just, mm. I'm not, yep. I'm looking at, <clears throat> is that where it can be measured and has proven return on investment, it looks to me as though the return on investment is huge Yes. when it's done well, mm-hmm. yeah? But the flip side of that is, is that Companies seem very reticent to empower mm-hmm. community leaders. Okay, what, what was it you were saying? The vast majority of people in community l- leadership are they're, they're leading a team of one or less uh, on the internal side. On the internal side, right? Yeah. I mean, the external side is it, it's very very easy, right? You know, you, yeah. you, you, there's, there's plenty of metrics there yeah. that you can look at, and it's easy. What makes it hard from an internal perspective because let me let me explain why. Because people have spoken to me recently about uh, about the management of people. Okay, I don't want to call it human resources, though yeah. everybody does. Yeah. But it's really about the management of people. And I've said for for a long time, really, what we should be thinking about is people are no different to customers. 
Now we we're we're very happy at attempting to treat customers really well, or mm -hmm. at least giving the facade of doing that. But we treat our own people like crap. Mm. And and you expect these people to treat customers really well. I mean, there's the, the logic behind that completely escapes me. And so where I come back, I come back to the accounting. <clears throat> if we can't account for the value, we can't advocate for it, right? So gotcha. Angela Blanchard, I was talking to her. She ran a $600 million community foundation in the Houston area for years. Huge mm. community foundation. And I was talking to her generally about nonprofits and finances and ROI and understanding revenue and whatever. And she's like, what I, I see is that budgets are your biggest advocacy tool you will ever get. Because that's, and you said this to me years ago, Budgets are how you account for your values, yeah, yeah. right? And people do not make that connection, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and companies are still stuck in the mindset, we're all stuck in this mindset of people are widgets in a production system. Well, that's why we have, that's why, that's why so many projects are time and materials, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's no and, value and, in that. And they're whatsoever. not, and they've never been, and that's not how you get the best use and work from them. Um, and you can get so much more productivity out of them if you don't treat them like widgets. But our entire governance structure is set up to treat them like widgets, right? And so until, and, and this is why I'm so excited about what we did this year in the research, is put financial values around this. And, and, where where it's psycho psychologically kind of the rubber hits the road is the reason you can get this massive ROI from communities is if you're willing to share value with other people, then you both get it. <laughs> but we're not willing to share because we have this control thing and we have this thing around KPIs of like, I need a discrete KPI for this executive so I can, I have a choke or a throat to choke, right? Like I need to know exactly who I can target and cut off at the knees if something's not working. There is a, the CEO of a, an extremely well-known software company. Um, I won't name them. Her, because it is a her, mm -hmm. her, her de facto way of operating would be to walk into a room and say, okay, who do I fire today? It's like, what? And so makes no sense. At the end of the day, it comes down to the question of <laughs> what are our organizations for? Like, what's their goal in the end? Is yeah. it to serve people and make us more prosperous or is it to give, you know, 50 people a lot of money? I think it's to give 50 people a lot of money. Yeah, that's, that's how it's set up today. And, um, you know, like I've been watching Yacinda Arden in New Zealand and sh she oh, gets this, wow. right? She's yeah, yeah, saying yeah. GDP 
doesn't tell me how healthy my society is. It tells right. me how much we produced last year. Right. Which, ha you know, maybe that's one factor, but that's not going to tell me whether people are happy and thriving. Yeah. And so it's the same, it's the same, uh, it's the same element with communities. Do you, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be successful as individuals? Do you want breadth of prosperity? Or do you want prosperity only for a few at the top? I, I saw a tweet um, recently from a, it must have been an investor or invest, investor analyst where they were talking about a particular company and he said, I don't care, I don't care. just keep paying the dividend, I'm happy. It's, it's like, <laughs> uh, just, <clears throat> and um, I, I, I remember sort of, I, I have this thing that people call paying forward, right? People have said to me for years, they said, well, why do you do this? Why, why do you give so much stuff away? I said, it's real simple. I know that a good 80% of what I give away is never going to come back to me. But you know what? The 20% pays 120%. Yep. Always. Yep. Absolutely. You know? And actually, like, it, it, uh, while I look at communities in the commercial space and have translated some of that into financial stuff, what I'd really love to do is go into a local community. And so I, I think about my grandparents a lot because they were farmers <laughs> in the Midwest. And my grandmother took care of the whole community. Um, and I remember when she died, we went out there. And what did we do after her funeral? In small churches in the middle of the country, what you do is you go into the church basement and you eat lunch. And who makes lunch for you? The church ladies make lunch for you. And you don't really talk to them. They're always there. They probably make lunch for people four times uh, a month, right? Um, and then I got to thinking, I'm like, who is more valuable in this community? The church ladies are the minister. The minister gets paid. The church ladies do this for free. But who gets people to come to church every week? Probably the church yeah, yeah. ladies. Yeah, yeah. Right? But we don't see them. We don't value them. We don't pay them. And so can we articulate their value in financial figures so we can start to see it? And so we start to understand that if we don't have church ladies, we don't have a church. So all these small churches are dying because the women have all left and actually gotten paid for work. And there's no more church ladies. There's nobody creating the community and bringing people back and making sure my grandmother used to pick up four old ladies every Sunday and take them to church, right? Like she literally made sure people were there. Um, so all that has value that we dismiss out of hand right now because we can't see it. We can't see it in a financial figure. So, so, so do you think... Do you think that this sort of whole COVID-19 thing will get people to do some sort of a reset that that changes that or not? What do you what do you think? I don't know. I don't I don't really 
I don't really think any one of us knows. I think certainly it will accelerate and and uh, empower some people that were already working towards change. Um, I think it will get a, a large swath of other people to at least open up their minds to the fact that something really big does have to change. And I think for another set of people, they just want to get back to where where things were because where things were, if not perfect, were stable for them and they were relatively successful in the system as it existed um, or thought they were as successful as they could ever be, expect to be. Um, but I think, you know, you can look at the politics in the U.S. and you can see how hollow our economy has been like what it has done to our culture oh yeah right and and is it worth it is it has it really been worth it um but are there enough people actually asking that question because i mean i hear time and again when we go back when we go back as, as though there is some sort of place that we've arrived at and we're going to go back to this particular place and pick up as though nothing has happened, and it's like I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I, 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 well, I, I and this is where I, go, I don't, I, I just don't, do not understand. This. I don't know what's going to happen because I, for a while, I was saying, oh, well, we're seeing all this awful stuff, and social media helps expose all of these issues, and so now we can fix them. And then I look at the racial incidents that have happened over the weekend and I'm like, they don't, people don't care that it's being recorded and shared. Like that doesn't change their behavior. <laughs> like it doesn't make them uh, think or reflect or, um, but maybe it does impact another set of us who are reflecting Okay, have, have we become immune? Do you think we've become immune because there is yes, I, there I, is in some sense there is there is so much unbelievable crap. Let's put, yeah. it, put it bluntly, right? That it's it's just normal now. So I do it's, think it's, it's normal that we have crap. People, um, uh, especially in Europe, I uh, people I know have been like, "Why isn't everybody out in the streets in the U.S.?" And I think that's a big part of it, which is people are like, "It's all just crap." Like whatever. Well, I just like, you know, I have to say that I thought you know that there was there was a time not so long ago where I thought you know what this is going to lead to civil war. Now I'm not so sure, but it still could. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Um, it's interesting. I saw the the regional packs that some of the governors created around the COVID thing, and yeah. I was like, that looks like. To me, that looks like the beginning of regional economies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, because we already well, have, have it, that; if, it's just not explicit. Yeah, but I mean, if you have explicit r- regional economies, then you have then you have state breakdown, right? yeah. a federal breakdown. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. All of which is a million miles away yeah. from what we're no, well, kind of but talking it's not. about. I've been listening to Heather Cox Richardson recently. She's a, a U.S. historian. 
and she's writing about how the South won the Civil War um, because the hierarchical model of plantations got replicated in the West where they did mining and, and all, all these big um, cattle ranches also needed a lot of capital investment and led to a big boom bust type economy. And uh, that, that political social piece is absolutely wrapped into the economic piece. And so everything that I do with communities is trying to expose a different governance model that is more equitable and more distributed and more prosperous to a wider set of people and that it's relative to how much you engage, right? You get value relative to how much you put in. And I think that's a better economic structural governance model for organizations. And so it's that's cool. really not diff, it's not different. It's, it's, it's kind of a different lens on the same problem of I'm, how can we create organizations that do this differently? And that would be called classic communism as written by Karl Marx and Engels, to each according to their needs, to each according to their ability, or something like that. Uh, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I know you don't, but I mean, that, that was the immediate thing that went off yeah. in my mind. Because everybody, well, I don't say everybody, I, I shouldn't use that term. A good number of people, let's put it that way, particularly in America, when you turn around and make those kind of statements, will make that association and the problem is, is that communism is like kryptonite. Mm. Socialism is is kryptonite in America, and I've never understood why. Um, and maybe maybe it can be explained by the racism. That, I mean, it's racism. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's more than that, Rachel. I mean, when I, I traveled to America for twenty five years, and then I lived there for two years. Okay, and when you've traveled somewhere for a very very long period of time, you think you know. You, you, there's a lot of things about which you've got a good idea, but you think you know. And the most shocking thing to me when I turned up there was within literally a month, it became clear to me in, in the town of San Diego, and I'm kind of downtown where it's fairly rich. Um, San Diego's expensive anyway. But anyway, um, where it was normal for people to hold down two jobs in order to pay rent. It's like, what? Yeah. What is this insanity? Yeah that you have to work 12, 14 yeah. hours a day just to pay rent. And by the way, you're smiling about it yeah. because it's normalized, right? It's normalized. And and that's part of the work I'm trying to do is basically say it doesn't have to be that way. There is a no, model. There is a choice. And, and where I don't see it as communism is the community collectively wants to maximize its value, right? Yeah. And, and – you're not necessarily like communities have strong boundary conditions, right? You're, you're in or out of the community, right? Like if you're not, then it's not really a strong community and, no. and communities still need to be porous, but there needs to be a firm, like what makes you part of this and what makes you not part of this um, to really create that trust Right, you need, but you, but you yeah. know, but you know, there is a there there is an alternative set of dynamics that goes on here because I mean, we we talked 
We've talked in the past about the the the, the relative success of, of the SAP community mm. going back years and how it's. I mean, yeah. And within that community, there was this notion of SAP mentors, about 100 of us, mm -hmm. right? I, I was one of them. Mm -hmm. Now, we were, and I would argue still are, a potent force within that ecosystem, mm -hmm. yeah? A lot of us have left it, mm -hmm. okay? But we maintain relationships mm -hmm. with a lot of people, both internally and externally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still have relationships mm -hmm. going back God knows how many years with those people, right? Which, which is fantastic, because... It means when something important happens, I can call upon this community yep. to, to, to act, and they do, yep. which is fabulous, right? But the flip side of that is, is that in some circles, it was regarded as elitist, mm -hmm. okay? And I said, I don't understand why you would think that. Well, you guys are so smart, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. It's got nothing to do with how smart you are. It's got everything so to do I, with how good you are at community, for God's sake. I was um, talking to somebody recently, uh, and uh, this also gets at the communist thing as well. There's a fundamental tension in communities that cannot be uh, solved, which is they are inclusive and exclusive. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? Like and what you're you're inclusive internally but exclusive to the network around you. And that yeah, yeah, is a yeah. fundamental tension that each community kind of navigates differently. Yeah, I actually don't think that's the problem if I'm honest. I mean, because it's not I a problem, the... it's a ten it's a tension that needs to be managed, right? And every community needs to decide right. where on that spectrum yeah. They're going to sit. Rachel, you know what? We could talk yeah. about this forever, but I'm already late. And that's okay. It and so it doesn't matter. It's so much fun to catch up. I'm sorry. I oh, listen, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have to talk about this some more. We are going to have to talk about this some more because th there's a piece of me that thinks that we're at a, a, a point in time where we have a, a genuine opportunity yeah. as opposed to a created opportunity mm -hmm. um, to, to, to reset things in a, a, a much, much better way. For everybody. Yeah, and I need and, somebody like you with the accounting, and I need a legal I, – I need some operational people to help, like, figure this out because there's, there's, there's something there that I think is really powerful.